I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9 again as we continue in our study of God's Word together. Been with us, you know, that uh, last week as we were in this chapter, we were on the mountaintop, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus, accompanied by Peter and James and John, uh, they experienced the, the glory of Christ in the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah were there in glory as well. And, and the disciples uh, slept through most of this, but as they awoke, uh, they beheld the majesty and the glory of God. And in that moment, uh, Peter wanted to, to keep it going, wanted that to be the dwelling, wanted to make a dwelling for Moses and Elijah and Jesus uh, because of this mountaintop experience. But as we will see, Today, uh, we don't live on the mountaintop. Uh, we live in the valley, and that is where Jesus will now take Peter, James, and John, and that is where Luke takes us, uh, where we find a pleading father, uh, an oppressed son, and a, a faithless group of disciples, uh, but where I also pray we find some lessons that will help us as we seek to walk by faith in the valley. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. And we stand because this is the Holy Word of God, and this is what God's Word says through a doctor named Luke, who inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave back him to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You would pray with me. Father, we have just sang the proclamation that millions of believers have sang over the last century and a half. <laughs> we have sang that it is well, but it doesn't always feel well. And so, Father, help us to place our trust, our hope, our faith, our belief in the truth of your word 
rather than simply in how we feel. And help us in moments, Lord, where we feel the crushing weight of despair and discouragement and suffering and troubles in those moments. Help us to cling to this hope that we have in the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You probably could not read the very small print underneath the, the heading of that hymn we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. But if you could squint and read, you would have seen that that was written by Horatio Spafford. Now, some of you know Spafford's story. In 1871, it was a good story. Uh, he had a good life. He and his wife Anne had been married at that point for 10 years. They had celebrated uh, the birth of four healthy daughters. And he was a senior partner in a law firm in northern Chicago. Uh, they were doing very well. In fact, they were doing so well that he took much of what he had made from his law practice and invested it in real estate, and that did well. Life was good until it wasn't. If you know your history, you may know that it was also in 1871, the latter part of that year, uh, that there was the great Chicago fire, and that fire destroyed much, including uh, much of what Spafford and his wife owned. But they persevered. They were able to rebuild, and it got to the point a couple of years later where they had saved up enough uh, to take the trip of a lifetime for them to take their four girls on a vacation to Europe. Uh, his business dealings uh, called his attention away from that trip, so he wasn't able to travel at the time they traveled. He sent Anne and the girls ahead. He was going to meet them later. And then on November 22nd, 1873, uh, the worst thing imaginable for a parent happened when uh, another ship collided with that ship that was carrying his wife and his four girls, and over 200 people died, including his four daughters. Annie was 12, Maggie was 7, Bessie was 4, and their youngest 18-month-old girl, Tanetta, all perished when those ships collided. Uh, Anne alone survived from their family, and when the ship made it to port, she sent a telegram to her husband that simply read, Saved Alone. And Spafford would soon get on a ship. He would travel to be with his wife as he was traveling across the same waters that they had gone across not long before. Uh, someone pointed out the sight of those ships colliding, and it was there, as he looked at those waters where his girls had perished, that he wrote the words that we just sang. Again, part of that is this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And those lyrics were born out of devastation and out of loss. They speak of the truth that at times life is peaceful. It's like a river. 
And at times it is like a raging sea that is against us. There are good days and there are days that are beyond bad days, that are unspeakable days. And yet I believe the truth that Spafford communicates in that hymn is the truth that we see in the Word of God, that whether we are on the mountaintop at the transfiguration beholding the glory of Christ or we are in the valley with a demon-oppressed child who convulses to the point that he is thrown into the fire and a father who is begging for help. At those high highs and those low lows, God is sovereign over both. But in our despair and in our discouragement and in our suffering and in our hardships, we are tempted not to believe that God is God and God is good. Will we believe these things? Easily, I think. At moments when life is going well, when when we're in the end zone, when we're celebrating, it's in those moments that, that it's a natural response for the believer to thank God and to praise God because things are good. That is an unnatural response when things are bad because in those moments we struggle to believe and we struggle to have faith. And it's in that struggle that I want us to come now to Luke chapter 9 to see what we might learn that can help us in these moments of devastating loss, in these moments of just walking through a fallen world. So we'll begin with the first reminder I have for you there before you in your outline. Number one, we are reminded in this passage uh, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Now, now again, consider the context and why I would make that observation. We have just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. We've just come from this glorious moment that, as I pointed out last Lord's Day, the, the gospel writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, still seem to struggle to find the right words to portray what was witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, this, this glory of Jesus, that, that they beheld, that, that they were in awe of, and yet we can barely describe it in words. Other than to say, essentially, it was the brightest, bright, it was the most glorious sight they could behold and imagine, that they saw the glory of Christ that one day we too will see. We, we long to see it, but we can't even describe what it'll be. But we, we picture in our mind that which we cannot picture well, what it will be to be in the glory of Christ, in the presence of Christ, to behold and to share a glory like His, which we see here in Luke 9. Moses and Elijah, they appear in glory as well. And so it's not hard for us to understand why when Peter and James and John see this, Peter wants to make a dwelling. Peter wants them to stay. Peter wants to be on the mountain. Peter wants to be in the presence of the glory of God. Because that, that's where we want to be, isn't it? And yet, what we're reminded of in the very next passage is that that's not where we live. 
That, that's not where Peter and James and John live. That, that's not where at this moment in salvation history, Jesus lives. That there are moments that we see throughout the Word of God where there's the mountaintop and there's the glory of God and the presence of God, but that's not the majority of the story. Where, where the narrative of Scripture takes us more often is down into the valley and down into the suffering and down into the effects of living in a fallen world. That, that's where we live. We, we want to be on the mountain. <laughs> We, we want those mountaintop experiences, but, but we need to remember that that's not where we live. And we need to remember this, because if we don't remember this, then, then when despair and discouragement and hardship and suffering comes in those moments, if we're expecting everything to be good and glorious, then we will wrestle with the reality of what God's Word teaches us. That, that he is God and that he is good. Because in those moments, if we're expecting glory all the time and mountaintops all the time, then we begin to question, God, are you really God? Are you really in control here? Because if you're in control, why are you letting this happen to me? Why are you letting this happen to those I love? Why? And, and that one word will drive us insane. And it will cause us to wrestle more than any other word. Why? And if we expect the mountaintop all the time, that then when suffering and hardship and discouragement and despair come, we, we will struggle to believe that God is truly good and that God has good purposes for us. And so it's fundamental. It's fundamental for us to understand right now where we are, we, we live in a fallen world, and the fall has affected and touched everything. And, and that's why when you open up your church bulletin every Sunday, there, there's a prayer list on the back. And, and I'm no prophet, but, but I would imagine that for the rest of our days here in this fallen world, there will be a prayer list on the back. And that's why when you pass by the hospital, the parking lot's full. Because until the day of Jesus' return, the hospital parking lots will be full. Why? Because that's an effect of the fall. Death and disease and suffering, all of these things have come in and we deal with until the day of his glory when we deal with them no longer. And so fundamental for us to understand as we walk now into this valley with Jesus and Peter and James and John and now meet the other disciples and now see this pleading father and now see this oppressed child fundamental to us dealing with that and understanding that is that is where the Gospels take us the majority of the time. You can look through what we've covered in Luke so far. You can look at what we're going to cover. You can look at all the Gospel accounts. This is where we live in the Gospels. It is with the demon oppressed. It is with the sick child. It is with the grieving parents. This is where we often find ourselves in Scripture because this is where we often find ourselves in life. And I realize that may not seem like a very motivational statement this morning. <laughs> you know, what did you learn at church today? Well, I learned that everything's bad. <laughs> yeah. Let's sing now. But if we don't understand this, friends, we will not be able to see God's good purposes. And so this is where Luke takes us. 
We're not on the mountain anymore. We're in the valley now. And now we have this father who is begging Jesus after having begged the disciples for reasons that we, if you're a parent in this room, can fully understand. And even if you're not a parent, you can fully grasp this. It seems, for whatever reason, that up until this point in Luke's gospel, so often these accounts of suffering and hardship and calamity, they, they are with a child. My child is sick, Jesus. Help them. And even those who don't ask, uh, the child is dead, and Jesus helps them. And here, this child is oppressed by a demon. Help, help him. And the Father describes all that has taken place in great detail between this and the other Gospels. Here, alone in verse 39, we read, it seizes him, it convulses him, it shatters him. Well, we have spoken already about demonic activity and all of these things. I won't recover all of that other than to say even over these dark and hard moments, God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty now, we see that Jesus has come to what may seem like a rather extraordinary situation to us. A child oppressed by a demon, something that you and I don't encounter. We, we, we haven't faced this. This isn't our daily routine of walking to church and seeing a child convulsing and seized and throwing himself into a fire. And yet, the, the situation itself is not all that unfamiliar to us. A, a parent, a loved one, grieving, anxious, worried about the child, the child who has overcome and overwhelmed with something outside of their control, outside of the parent's control, and the parent wants the child to be well. We, we understand that situation. And it's here in that situation that we find Jesus encountering in a fallen world in the valley that which is common to man, that which should not surprise us or shock us. In fact, we're told of this by Peter himself, who later writes, in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, something comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why would Peter write that? Because we are tempted to respond to suffering and discouragement as if it is the extraordinary and should not be happening to us. Why? Because we want to be on the mountaintop. <laughs> but for now, we're in the valley. And what we need to understand in the valley is that even in the depths of discouragement, and in the hardest of days, God is not absent. He is present and he is sovereign. Which brings us to that second observation, number two, that God is sovereign over the troubles we face in this fallen world. Now, I would imagine today, if I were to ask you for an agreement, an understanding, that do you believe that we live in a fallen world, I don't think I would get much pushback on that. Even among unbelievers, that there seems to be an understanding that the world is not as it should be. And so I've had gospel opportunities where I've talked to unbelieving people, and I will, I will ask them about these things. And there's an, an affirmation and understanding, even among those who are rebelling against God, don't believe in the Word of God, that the world is not as it should be. And yet we, followers of Jesus, we have the answer to why that is. 
It's because of the fall. And so there's a, a fundamental understanding. Yeah, we, we live in a fallen world. And yet, when we come to the second point, I believe this, this is where we struggle. We, we don't struggle to believe that we live in a fallen world, but we do struggle to believe that God is sovereign over all these things in our fallen world. And notice what we see here. That this father, verse 40, says to Jesus, I, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. But there seems to be a question here about the sovereignty of God over this situation. I, I begged them to do it, and they could not cast it out. Now, at first glance, maybe you read that as I have read that before, and we don't really look down on the disciples for this, because I'm quite sure it's hard to cast out a demon. I've never cast out a demon. I don't imagine I'll ever cast out a demon. And so I read this and read about the situation. It seems that the disciples tried. It seems that they wanted to. It seems that they even inquire of Jesus afterwards, as we read in Matthew's gospel, as we find in Mark's gospel. They want to know why they could not cast it out. This isn't a matter of the disciples having no interest in casting it out, but it seems that they cannot do it. And yet, what should strike us as peculiar about this is what we've already read in Luke's Gospel. In fact, what we read at the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so the context here is Jesus has given them power and authority over all demons, not over some, not over the easy ones, not over the minor ones, not over just a specific group of them. Jesus has given them from the authority that he ultimately has over all things he has given them authority over all demons. And yet now we find themselves in a situation with this authority that God has given them not doing what they've been empowered to do. Why is that? I've read a number of commentators on this passage, and, and one prevailing belief is that that at this point, the disciples had become perhaps a bit self-sufficient or perhaps a bit prideful. They had experienced a mountaintop of their own in ministry where they, they went out into these villages. Jesus was not with them. They were sent out two by two. And with this power Jesus had given, they had seen demons cast out. This has been unique in their ministry up until that point. That had not been something that they had experienced. They'd seen Jesus do it, but they'd not been given the power, the authority to do it. And now with that power and authority, some look at this passage and say, well, that, that was kind of getting to their heads. And so now when they encounter this father who's begging and pleading with them, perhaps the way they approached that situation was a bit different than how they approached things earlier in the chapter where they were depending on the power of God and they started depending on a power they felt they had within them of themselves. And as a result of that, the demon did not come out because the demon has no regard for the power of man, only for the power of God. 
And, and that very well may be the situation here. In fact, I think that's probably connected. It's probably part of it. But, but I think the key to understanding why this demon did not come out when the disciples sought to cast this demon out comes in the way that Jesus responds to what the Father says in verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Now again, we have to ask the question, well, who's Jesus speaking to? And some read this and say, well, Jesus is speaking to, to everybody. You know, this is those gathered, maybe even those not gathered. And Jesus is looking at the crowd, the masses, and he's saying, you know, what else do you need to see? What else do you need to behold? You're just faithless and you're twisted. But, but, but I think there's something more specific here. You know, some people take it as specific to say that, well, Jesus is speaking to the Father here, and he's saying this to the Father, that, that you don't have faith, and that's why your, your child's not been healed. But I don't think that's the situation at all, especially when you read what happens next, that the child is healed. And if it was an issue of the Father not having faith, then uh, his encounter with the disciples would be no different than his encounter with Jesus. Where I lean on this passage is that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And you might hear that and say, well, wait a second. The disciples had faith, didn't they? And we've read about their faith. I mean, Peter, not long before this, has made this great confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. That they've left everything to follow Jesus. Well, what do you mean they didn't have faith? Well, that, that, that word faithless, what that word means it's unbelieving. And I don't think it means it in the sense that the disciples have now denied the gospel and denied the word of God and don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. I think the context in the sense is what Jesus is saying to them is he's addressing their unbelief in this situation, their, their struggle to believe in this situation. So you, you can be a professing follower of Jesus Christ today. You can be one who believes that, that Jesus is truly God and truly man, came and lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, was buried in the tomb, was resurrected on the third day, sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and intercedes for you and I today. You can believe this. You can believe that one day he will return in glory. You can believe all of that and still struggle to believe in your discouragement and despair that God is good and that God is God. Because in your hardest moments and in my hardest moments, we are tempted to struggle with believing these things because it doesn't feel like God is in control. And it doesn't feel like He's good. And we can become so overwhelmed and weighted down with the moment and how we feel in that moment that we begin to question these very things. And I think that's a glimpse of what's taking place here, is that Jesus is addressing 
the unbelief of the disciples. The disciples who it seems, again, they wanted this demon to come out, that they were trying to get this demon out, but whatever it was about it, whatever was taking place, and none of the gospel writers walk us through it to know, but whatever it is, it pushed them to a point where they were struggling to believe that they really had this power given by Christ that Christ said he gave them. And so I would imagine in that moment, as they enter into it, as they seek to do what they've already done to cast out this demon, as they've already cast other demons out, the demon doesn't come out. And then rather than believing and trusting, and as the other gospel accounts give us, praying and fasting and trusting in the word of God, they, they don't believe this demon is going to come out, meaning they don't believe the word of Jesus. Because Jesus gave them a word already and said they had a power and authority over not some but all demons. But when things did not go like they thought they should go, they began to question whether Jesus' words were correct or whether they should, in fact, believe his words. And, and thematically, I mean, that's really the theme of this chapter, isn't it? I mean, we've seen... The unbelief of Herod, but we expect the unbelief of Herod, you know. Who, who is he? I don't know who he is. Bring him to me, not because he wants to believe, but eventually so he'll just mock Jesus. He doesn't believe. But, but then among the disciples, we, we expect this wholehearted belief and commitment, and yet we've already seen a struggle to believe among them, especially with Peter. Because what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, hard days are coming, Peter. And I'm going to suffer, and, and I'm going to die. And Peter does not believe what Jesus says. That is why Peter says to him, no. <laughs> you can't say to God, I believe and I trust, and at the same time say no to what Jesus says. Dr. Tim Booker, who pastored this church for a number of years and were my professors at Southern and mentors, and, and through that connection, God brought me here to Bloomfield. I remember him saying on a number of occasions in class, you know, two words you can never say is no Lord. But because if you really believe he's Lord, you can't say no. And if you say no, then you don't really believe he's Lord. Because if, if he truly is Lord, if God truly is God and God truly is good, then we can't say no to his plans and his purposes. Even when we're looking out over the waters where those we love have perished. And so I think the moment we have here, I think the picture we have here is the struggle of the disciples to truly believe, not just some of what Jesus has said, but all of what Jesus has said. And that's the struggle for you and I as well. Not when we're on the mountaintop. <laughs> Everybody's amen and up there. But when we're down in the valley. And so, point three, the, the question for us is, when trouble comes, will you trust in God? Not, not do you trust in God? But because I believe this is a decision you make before the trouble comes. But because when trouble comes, 
that's a terrible time to make decisions about what you believe about God. Because everything about your circumstance will scream at you. God is not in control of this situation, and God is not good, because if God was good, then you wouldn't be going through this. And if God was really sovereign, he wouldn't allow this. We don't form in those moments of discouragement and hardship and suffering. That, that's not when you form what you're understanding, your doctrine, your theology. We do that right now. We make those decisions now. So that when the trouble comes, we can call back to mind those things that we have entrusted our lives to. I've mentioned in weeks, months, sometime in the last couple of years, the you know, Lamentations 3 is where I've been living. And, and sometimes I'm later in Lamentations 3. You know, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And then sometimes I'm earlier in Lamentations 3 where I feel like I'm chewing on gravel and I feel like God is against me. And maybe you feel that way too at times. I believe it's Jeremiah writing Lamentations, and he describes God in terms that if we just talked about God this way, people would question if we even believe in God. He's describing his feelings. He, he says he feels like God is a bear hiding around a corner waiting to jump out and devour him. I mean, if that was point three of my sermon this morning, God is a bear hiding around a corner waiting to devour you. Somebody would have a conversation with me afterwards. <laughs> but, but Jeremiah doesn't say this is who God is. He said, this is what I feel like. That this is, in the midst of my situation, how it feels. I feel like God is not God and God is not good. But then he writes, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. The question is not today, how do you feel? The question is, what do you know? What do you know about God? What have you been taught about God? What does God's word say about him? He has given us his word for so much and fundamental to why he's given it to us is that we might know who he is. That he is sovereign from beginning to end. And we don't interpret his sovereignty through our circumstances or our feelings. We interpret it through what he has said of himself. And in those moments, it doesn't feel like he's in charge. And it doesn't feel like he's good. That's why we need to call to mind what we know of him. Jesus addresses this very thing. The Father addresses this very thing. In the Mount of Transfiguration, God does not come in his majesty and descend in that cloud and fog to say to Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son. How do you feel about him today? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What if you don't feel like listening? 
listen to him. Yeah, but my, my circumstances say this. God doesn't say listen to your circumstances. He says listen to Jesus. And, and by the way, this, this is all the words of Jesus in front of us today. Not, not just the red one. In the beginning, Genesis 1, to the end of Revelation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. And then the Word dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Jesus is the Word. This is the Word. What does Jesus say in His Word? What does He inspire others to say in His Word? Where does His Word given to others to give to us? Romans 8, 28. And we know, not not, and we feel, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That, that's what we know. But that does not say that for every person in the world, all things work together for good. It says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so what we know is that regardless of our circumstance and our situation, that God is God and God is in control and God has good purposes for the things that we are enduring and persevering through, even when it doesn't feel good. And it may never feel good. But we may get glimpses in our life to understand why we endured a hardship, why we went through a struggle, why that tribulation happened, so that we can then later look back and praise God and thank God. You know, Lord, if that, if that hardship had never happened, then, then I can't imagine what would have happened here. We, we can see at times the pieces of the puzzle and how they come together. There's other times we just don't ever see it this side of eternity. But one day we will see. And that's why faith is not interpreting things through what we see. It's interpreting things through what we know. And what we know is that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, Jesus, he heals the child and, and, and this isn't because Jesus, you know, he had some special extra power that the disciples didn't have. He gives the power he has. He, he empowers them to do it. They don't believe, and so the demon doesn't come out. Then he shows them why they can believe using the very power that he had entrusted to them and with them. He then uses and shows them, yes, this demon can come out through the same power and authority that you've been given. You, you just didn't believe. Well, the demon comes out, and then, not coincidentally, <laughs> Luke continues in this narrative with the next statement. Notice there's a connection here. This isn't disconnected. That this isn't, you know, act one, scene one, and, you know, act five, scene two over here, and Luke just decides to, you know, put them together because the theme fits together. 
that this in the narrative, this flows. This is what happens next. All were astonished at the majesty of God. They had witnessed and they had beheld the majesty of God now in the valley. Peter, James, and John saw it on the mountaintop. Now they see the glory of God and the hand of God at work in the valley, in the despair. And, and while this is taking place, Luke tells us, while they're all marveling, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. You, you don't have to know Greek. You don't have to be a, a, a linguist this morning to understand what Jesus is saying. You know, if, if, if my wife walks into the kitchen when I get home and says to me, oh, hey, by the way, um, make sure you remember that uh, two weeks from Monday, uh, there's a back school night and, and we need to be there for it. That's different than if she says, Richard, Let my words sink into your oversized ears. That, that's going to get my attention. It's going to get your attention. Now, Jesus is not saying something casually here. Again, what's the issue at stake? Belief. Listen to him. Believe him. Jesus says to them, let my words sink into yours, which may seem peculiar to us because they've just beheld his glory. He's just done something glorious. They are probably feeling pretty good right now. I would imagine this father's feeling good. His son's been healed. I would imagine this boy's feeling good, you know, I don't know what it would be to be oppressed in this way. And he walks by fire and he throws himself in. This is not a clumsy child. This is a child who has no control over their own body. I would imagine there's a feeling of elation and excitement. And, and people are, you know, this is time for the pep rally. Maybe Peter's even saying, let's, okay, let's set up the tents here now, you know. This isn't about how they feel. And that's why Jesus let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to deliver, be delivered into the hands of men. And I think in essence what Jesus is getting out here is if, if you were struggling to believe me when it came to this demon, you're really going to have a hard time believing me here. If you struggled to, to, to believe that you had the power I said you had, you're, you're really, you're going to struggle with what comes next. You've got to start listening. See, God, Jesus here, he, he did not give his word to the disciples and say to them, you, you just pick out the parts you like and don't worry about the rest. And yet, you know, that, that's how we come to God's word sometimes. Here's the bumper sticker verses. I like the bumper sticker verses. You know. Romans 8, 28. It, all things work together for good. I like that all things work together for good. Do not be surprised when a trial comes. I don't like that. I want to be surprised because I want them to come so 
stretched out and hardly ever that it does surprise me. Jesus says, friends, open up your ears and listen. Open up your eyes and see. Let my words sink in. Because if, if you don't believe me here, ultimately you're not really believing me there. And so the question again for us is, when hard times come, will we believe him? And will we trust him? And it is fitting to ask these questions as we come to this table. <laughs> because historically, this table comes at a time in the word when the hardest times came for the disciples. That this table came on the eve of the fruition of the things Jesus said over and over to the disciples. Open up your ears. Listen. This is going to happen. And as much as he told them, what happens when it comes? They're unbelieving and they're worried and they're anxious and they're denying and they're scattering. Because it feels like it's all falling apart. To the point that when the tomb actually is empty and Jesus does raise from the dead, they're struggling still to believe it. Thomas walks with Jesus, sees all this. He struck, well, yeah, if I see his hand and I can touch his hand, well, then I'll, then I'll believe. I mean, isn't it amazing that no matter what, they still wrestle with the issue of belief. But maybe it's not amazing, because for us, what, no matter what, we, we wrestle with this. But the table is not just for those who have perfect belief. It's for those who trust in a perfect cross. So that we might come to the table and with bread in hand and cup in hand, say to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I have faith, help my lack of faith. And again, it's not coincidental here. That coming to this table and remembering these things are connected to believing what is to come and looking toward the glory that lies ahead. That this is our anchor of sorts. It, it anchors our faith. We, we come back to it as an affirmation of what we believe. That, that we believe that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again, that, that, that we believe he paid the penalty for our sins, that, that we believe he is coming again, that we believe one day we too will share in a glory like this. Therefore, we believe whatever happens in the valley doesn't have the final word. Because while we live here now, we will not rest here forever. And one day, Eternal in glory. We can believe these words. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you believe this word? Because if you believe to it, friends, this is your anchor, and this is your hope, and this is the final word. And this trumps every hardship and every difficulty and every anxiety and every worry that you and I will ever face. <laughs> this is the truth. And the question for us this morning is, do we believe it? We come to this table as those who believe and who want to believe greater.